Chapter 8 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Descent into Inferno. It was on March 28th, 1841, that Miss Dix was first brought face to face with the condition of things prevailing in the jails and almshouses of Massachusetts, which launched her on her great career. The story, repeated in so many scattered notices of her life, runs that, on coming out of church one Sunday, she overheard two gentlemen speaking in such terms of indignation and horror of the treatment to which the prisoners and lunatics in the East Cambridge, Massachusetts jail were subjected, that she forthwith determined to go over there and look into matters herself. The occurrence of the incident is perfectly possible, but the important fact of the case is given in the following extract from a letter of Reverend John T. G. Nichols, D.D., of Sacco, Maine. Quote, While a member of the theological school in Cambridge, writes Dr. Nichols, I was one of a body of students who took the East Cambridge House of Correction in charge for Sunday school instruction. All the women, twenty in number, were assigned to me. I was at once convinced that not a young man, but a woman should be their teacher. Consulting my mother, I was directed by her to Miss Dix for further counsel. On hearing my account, Miss Dix said, after some deliberation, I will take them myself. I protested her physical incapacity, as she was in feeble health. I shall be there next Sunday, was her answer. After the school was over, Miss Dix went into the jail. She found among the prisoners a few insane persons with whom she talked. She noticed there was no stove in their room and no means of proper warmth. The jailer said that a fire for them was not needed and would not be safe. Her repeated solicitations were without success. At that time, the court was in session at East Cambridge, and she caused the case to be brought before it. Her request was granted. The cold rooms were warmed. Thus was her great work commenced. Of course, I claim not a particle of credit. I was simply the instrument of the good providence to open the door for this angel of mercy to come in. It was thus that, in the East Cambridge jail, Miss Dix was first brought into immediate contact with the overcrowding, the filth, and the herding together of innocent, guilty, and insane persons, which at that time characterized the prisons of Massachusetts, and the inevitable evils of which were repeated in even worse shape in the almshouses. Her first act, as has been seen, was the practical one of enforcing mercy by law, through insisting that, 
in a climate where in winter the thermometer frequently registers zero and below, a fire of some sort should be provided for shivering wretches who in their frenzy often tore the clothes off their backs, casting about her for help she soon succeeded in enlisting the aid of that ever-loyal friend of humanity, Dr. S. G. Howe, and through him that of the afterwards famous philanthropist and statesman Charles Sumner. Close beside her, too, stood Reverend Robert C. Waterston. At Miss Dix's solicitation, dr howe himself made a careful examination the result of which was printed in an article in the boston daily advertiser of september eighth eighteen forty one an article of course fiercely attacked as is generally the case when abuses are pointed out later on in the controversy Dr. Howe appealed for corroboration to Charles Sumner, who had accompanied him on his visit. To this, Mr. Sumner replied, quote, My dear Howe, I am sorry to say that your article does present a true picture of the condition in which we found these unfortunates. They were cramped together in rooms poorly ventilated and noisome with filth. You cannot forget the small room in which were confined the raving maniac, from whom long since reason had fled, never to return, and that interesting young woman, whose mind was so slightly obscured that it seemed as if, in a moment, even while we were looking on, the cloud would pass away. In two cages or pens constructed of plank, within the four stone walls of the same room, these two persons had spent several months. The whole prison echoed with the blasphemies of the poor old woman, while her young and gentle fellow in suffering, doomed to pass her days and nights in such close connection with her, seemed to shrink from her words as from blows. And well she might, for they were words not to be heard by any woman in whom reason had left any vestige of its former presence. It was a punishment by a cruel man in heathen days to tie the living to the dead. Hardly less horrid was this scene in the prison at Cambridge. Ever faithfully yours, Charles Sumner. End quote. Was the state of things in the East Cambridge jail an exception, or did it simply exemplify the rule throughout the whole commonwealth? This was the painful question now raised in the mind of Miss Dix, to an unmistakable answer to which she resolutely devoted the next two years. Notebook in hand, she started out on her voyage of exploration visiting every jail and almshouse from Berkshire on the west to Cape Cod on the east, steadily accumulating her statistics of outrage and misery, she at last got together a mass of eye-witness testimony appalling in extent and detail. With this, 
she now determined to memorialize the legislature of Massachusetts. As this was the first memorial addressed by Miss Dix to a state legislature, long as was the series of the like that was to follow, full extracts from it are needful, alike to reveal the patience, energy, and spirit of humanity with which she addressed herself to her work, as well as the actual character of the evils she was now in arms against. Quote, Gentlemen, about two years since, leisure afforded opportunity, and duty prompted me to visit several prisons and almshouses in the vicinity of this metropolis. Every investigation has given depth to the conviction that it is only by decided, prompt, and vigorous legislation that the evils to which I refer and which I shall proceed more fully to illustrate, can be remedied. I shall be obliged to speak with great plainness, and to reveal many things revolting to the taste, and from which my woman's nature shrinks with peculiar sensitiveness. But truth is the highest consideration. I tell what I have seen, painful and shocking as the details often are, that from them you may feel more deeply the imperative obligation which lies upon you to prevent the possibility of a repetition or continuance of such outrages upon humanity. If my pictures are displeasing, coarse, and severe, my subjects, it must be recollected, offer no tranquil, refining, or composing features. The condition of human beings reduced to the extremest state of degradation and misery cannot be exhibited in softened language or adorn a polished page. I proceed, gentlemen, briefly, to call your attention to this present state of insane persons confined within this commonwealth, in cages, closets, cellars, stalls, pens, chained, naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience. End quote. Page after page, the memorial then goes on to recite the details of a long catalogue of horrors. They do not furnish pleasing reading, but if the life-work of Miss Dix is to be practically written out and duly appreciated, it is necessary to brace the nerves and go through with some of them. Quote, I give a few illustrations, the memorial then proceeds, but description fades before reality. Danvers, November, visited the almshouse, a large building much out of repair. Understand a new one is in contemplation. Here are from fifty-six to sixty inmates, one idiotic, three insane, one of the latter in close confinement at all times. Long before reaching the house, wild shouts, snatches of rude songs, imprecations, and obscene language fell upon the ear, 
proceeding from the occupant of a low building, rather remote from the principal building, to which my course was directed, found the mistress, and was conducted to the place which was called the home of the forlorn maniac, a young woman exhibiting a condition of neglect and misery, blotting out the faintest idea of comfort, and outraging every sentiment of decency. She had been, I learnt, a respectable person, industrious and worthy. Disappointments and trials shook her mind, and finally laid prostrate reason and self-control. She became a maniac for life. She had been at Worcester Hospital for a considerable time, and had been returned as incurable. The mistress told me she understood that, while there, she was comfortable and decent. Alas, what a change was here exhibited! She had passed from one degree of violence and degradation to another, in swift progress. There she stood, clinging to, or beating upon, the bars of her caged apartment, the contracted size of which afforded space only for increasing accumulations of filth, a foul spectacle. There she stood, with naked arms and disheveled hair, the unwashed frame invested with fragments of unclean garments, the air so extremely offensive, though ventilation was afforded on all sides save one, that it was not possible to remain beyond a few moments without retreating for recovery to the outward air. Irritation of body, produced by utter filth and exposure, incited her to the horrid process of tearing off her skin by inches. Her face, neck, and person were thus disfigured to hideousness. Is the whole story told? What was seen is, what is reported is not. These gross exposures are not for the pained sight of one alone. All, all coarse, brutal men, wandering, neglected children, old and young, each and all, witness this lowest, foulest state of miserable humanity. And who protects her, that worse than pariah outcast, from other wrongs and blacker outrages? Some may say these things cannot be remedied, these furious maniacs are not to be raised from these base conditions. I know they are. Could give many examples. Let one suffice. A young woman, a pauper in a distant town, Sandisfield, was for years a raging maniac. A cage, chains, and the whip were the agents for controlling her united with harsh tones and profane language. Annually, with others, the town's poor, she was put up at auction and bid off at the lowest price which was declared for her. One year not long past, an old man came forward in the number of applicants for the poor wretch. He was taunted and ridiculed. 
what would he and his old wife do with such a mere beast? My wife says yes, replied he, and I shall take her. She was given to his charge. He conveyed her home. She was washed, neatly dressed, and placed in a decent bedroom, furnished for comfort and opening into the kitchen. How altered her condition! As yet the chains were not off. The first week she was somewhat restless, at times violent, but the quiet ways of the old people wrought a change. She received her food decently, forsook acts of violence, and no longer uttered blasphemous or indecent language. After a week the chain was lengthened, and she was received as a companion into the kitchen. Soon she engaged in trivial employments. After a fortnight, said the old man, I knocked off the chains and made her a free woman. She is at times excited, but not violently. They are careful of her diet. They keep her very clean. She calls them father and mother. Go there now, and you will find her clothed, and though not perfectly in her right mind, so far restored as to be a safe and comfortable inmate. Groton A few rods removed from the poorhouse is a wooden building upon the roadside, constructed of heavy board and plank. There is no window, save an opening half the size of the sash, and closed by a board shutter. In one corner is some brickwork surrounding an iron stove, which in cold weather serves for warming the room. The occupant of this dreary abode is a young man who has been declared incurably insane. He can move a measured distance in his prison, that is, so far as a strong, heavy chain depending from an iron collar which invests his neck permits. In fine weather, and it was pleasant when I was there in June last, the door is thrown open, at once giving admission to light and air, and affording some little variety to the solitary in watching the passers-by. But that portion of the year which allows of open doors is not the chiefest part, and it may be conceived, without drafting much on the imagination, what is the condition of one who for days and weeks and months sits in darkness and alone, without employment, without object. End quote. This unhappy being in Groton, with the chain round his neck, is alluded to again in the following conversation between Miss Dix and the keeper of the almshouse in Fitchburg. Quote, why, she there asked, speaking of a poor lunatic, cannot you take this man abroad to work on the farm? He is harmless. Air and exercise will help to recover him. I have been talking with our overseers, was the answer, and I have proposed getting from the blacksmith an iron collar and chain. Then I can have him out by the house. 
an iron collar and chain. Yes, I had a cousin up in Vermont, crazy as a wild cat, and I got a collar made for him, and he liked it. Liked it? How did he manifest his pleasure? Why, he left off trying to run away. I kept the almshouse in Groton. There was a man there from the hospital. I built an outhouse for him, and the blacksmith made him an iron collar and chain, so we had him fast, and the overseers approved it. Shelburne I had heard, before visiting this place, of the bad condition of a lunatic pauper. I desired to see him, and after some difficulties raised and set aside, was conducted into the yard where was a small building of rough boards imperfectly joined. All was still, save now and then a low groan. The person who conducted me tried, with a stick, to rouse the inmate. I entreated her to desist. The twilight of the place making it difficult to discern anything within the cage. There at last I saw a human being, partially extended, cast upon his back amidst a mass of filth, the sole furnishing, whether for comfort or necessity, which the place afforded. There he lay, ghastly, with upturned glazed eyes and fixed gaze, heavy breathings, interrupted only by faint groans, which seemed symptomatic of an approaching termination of his sufferings. Not so, thought the mistress. He has all sorts of ways. He'll soon rouse up and be noisy enough. He'll scream and beat about the place like any wild beast half the time. And cannot you make him more comfortable? Can he not have some clean, dry place and a fire? As for clean, it will do no good. He's cleaned out now and then. But what's the use for such a creature? His own brother tried him once, but got sick enough of the bargain. But a fire. There is space, even here, for a small box stove. If he had a fire, he'd only pull off his clothes, so it's no use. I made no impression. It was plain that to keep him securely confined from escape was the chief object. How do you give him his food? I see no means of introducing anything here. Oh, pointing to the floor. One of the bars is cut shorter there. We push it through there. There? Impossible. You cannot do that. You would not treat your lowest dumb animals with that disregard to decency. As for what he eats, or where he eats, it makes no difference to him. He'd as soon swallow one thing as another. Newton Opening into this room only was the second, which was occupied by a woman, not old, and furiously mad. It contained a wooden bunk filled with filthy straw, the room itself a counterpart to the lodging place. 
inexpressibly disgusting and loathsome was all but the inmate herself was even more horribly repelling she rushed out as far as the chains would allow almost in a state of nudity exposed to a dozen persons and vociferating at the top of her voice pouring forth such a flood of indecent language as might corrupt even newgate i entreated the man who was still there to go out and close the door he refused that was not his place sick horror-struck and almost incapable of retreating i gained the outward air of the dangers and mischiefs sometimes following the location of insane persons in our almshouses i will record but one more example in worcester has for several years resided a young woman a lunatic pauper of decent life and respectable family i have seen her as she usually appeared listless and silent almost or quite sunk into a state of dementia sitting one amidst the family but not of them a few weeks since revisiting that almshouse judge my horror and amazement to see her negligently bearing in her arms a young infant of which i was told she was the unconscious parent who was the father none could or would declare disqualified for the performance of maternal cares and duties regarding the helpless little creature with a perplexed or indifferent gaze she sat a silent but oh how eloquent a pleader for the protection of others of her neglected and outraged sex details of that black story would not strengthen the cause needs it a weightier plea than the sight of that forlorn creature and her wailing infant poor little child more than orphan from birth in this unfriendly world a demented mother a father on whom the sun might blush or refuse to shine End quote such are brief selections from some of the extreme instances of misery and barbarity to which dorothea l dix now called public attention through her memorial to the legislature of massachusetts perhaps even more pitiful was the situation of the long catalogue of those whose reason less wholly overthrown left them like the poor young woman to whom Charles Sumner so pathetically alludes, more sensible of their forlorn condition. The memorial concluded with an impassioned appeal for adequate asylum provision against the continuance any longer of so foul a blot on the fair fame of the Commonwealth. Quote, Men of Massachusetts, I beg, I implore, I demand pity and protection for these of my suffering outraged sex. Fathers, husbands, brothers, I would supplicate you for this boon. But what do I say? I dishonor you, divest you at once of Christianity and humanity, 
does this appeal imply distrust here you will put away the cold calculating spirit of selfishness and self-seeking lay off the armor of local strife and political opposition here and now for once forgetful of the earthly and perishable come up to these halls and consecrate them with one heart and one mind to works of righteousness and just judgment gentlemen i commit to you this sacred cause your action upon this subject will affect the present and future condition of hundreds and thousands in this legislation as in all things may you exercise that wisdom which is the breath of the power of god respectfully submitted d l dix eighty five mount vernon street boston january eighteen forty three end quote end of chapter eight